the real problems are you know the ones that no one wants to talk about and so i think that if you kind of make it a little more clear that you're willing to hear and also willing to talk about you know the less than common and less than perfect parts of your life i think that you get so much richer opportunities i've received an outpouring of gratitude in the last six weeks And telling you that makes me quite uncomfortable and it feels kind of self-serving, but I promise there's a point. You see, the messages I've received have thanked me for being a leader and for sharing how I'm personally processing both our public health crisis and our economic pause. Many of these messages have also ended with something along the lines of, I hope there's someone supporting you right now. That's really why I'm sharing this with you, because sure, I know that sharing how I feel, what I'm doing to navigate planning or marketing, and how I'm coping is helpful. But what I think is really helpful about what I've been sharing, it's showing people that they're not alone. And I think that's what they're really trying to say to me when they say, I hope there's someone supporting you right now. They're saying, You've made me feel like I'm not alone, and I hope you don't feel alone either. Because the truth is, leaders get lonely. When everyone is looking to you for answers, for support, for guidance, you can feel like there's no one to go to for your own support. And since all small business owners are leaders in one way or another, we all feel that loneliness sometimes, or maybe we feel it quite often. This month, we're tackling that feeling of loneliness and the different kinds of support we can lean on to feel grounded and whole. I'm Tara McMullen, and you're listening to What Works, the show that digs deep into what's really working to run and grow a small business today, from how we market and manage to how we prime our mindset for success. Over the course of this month, we're going to tackle two sides of this conversation. One, mental health, and two, business owner support. And we'll acknowledge that this conversation really has many more sides than that. I'll share what works for me, and we'll be asking our community members to share what works for them, too. You'll hear from Nancy Jane Smith about living with and finding support for high-functioning anxiety, which is something I certainly deal with, along with many other business owners I know. You'll also hear a conversation between me and startup pregnant founder Sarah Peck about using and facilitating masterminds for support. And you'll hear from Sharin Eskandani about finding support through coaching. Today, we're kicking things off with Chris Brogan, an author, speaker, and consultant who has been incredibly forthcoming about his own experience with depression and anxiety. Chris helps business owners feel less lonely by vulnerably sharing what he's going through on a regular basis and by regularly offering his support to those who are in the throes of mental health challenges. Post by post, conversation by conversation, he's doing his part to reduce the stigma of depression, anxiety, and even failure. Now, you might know Chris from his New York Times bestselling book, Trust Agents, or maybe you've heard him speak on a stage or podcast. He's an incredibly prolific content creator, as well as a leader, connector, and all-around friendly guy. Chris and I talk about how depression and anxiety impact his life and work, how he structured his business to work with his mental health challenges, and how he knows what work to push through on and what can be dropped. We also talk about why he's made such an effort to be visible and helpful as he goes through the ups and downs he experiences on a regular basis. Now, let's find out what works for Chris Brogan. Chris Brogan, welcome to What Works. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm happier by like 400% just talking with you. (laughs) 
Awesome. Well, we are going to talk about a not so happy subject today. Um, but I think that your approach to it is really refreshing and warm and wonderful. And that's why I wanted to have you on the show to talk about it. So we're talking about depression and mental health and anxiety and stress and so many of the things that small business owners deal with, that entrepreneurs deal with, um, but often deal with it very much in in uh, quiet, in being lonely um, and feeling like they're alone. So I want to just kind of rip the Band-Aid off right now and uh, get into it. Um, so you've said that depression is a liar. And I would love to know some of the lies that depression has told you over the years. Thank you. Uh, with clinical depression, one of the things that people forget about or, or don't quite fully understand is it's a chemical thing. It's the same as someone saying, I have diabetes. I need to take this medicine so that I can eat these foods, that sort of a thing. So I don't get a vote uh, a lot of times with depression. The challenge with mental health is that it, we think we sort of accidentally relate it to our mood because that's the thing that it impacts, right? So these chemicals make me far less happy than I could stand to be. They make me uh, a lot more nihilist, like, oh, we'll never make it. The world is terrible, right? And uh, stresses and pressures do add or, or, or rather, if, if you feel a stress and a pressure at a one or a two, I feel it as a seven or something mm -hmm. like that. And so when I say depression is a liar, depression uses two words more than any other word in your self-talk, always and never. Mm. You always do this. You always do this, Chris. You, you know, you're going good for a while and then something happens and you're back in the toilet again. You always do this or never. You will never escape this. It is never going to get better. You are never going to feel like there are other people in the room. And, and it's really important to know. I, to me, the number one thing anyone could tell me when I'm dealing with my depression, when I'm in the midst of it, is those two things. You know, depression's a liar and that always and never are their biggest lies. And it's just because we were so willing to believe that voice inside what Dr. Daniel McKay called, uh, Matthew McKay, sorry, called the inner critic. Um, we listened to it and, and, his best opinion about what the inner critic does is it acts as a kind of pre-protector uh, of us by saying, let me just make you feel bad first so, mm -hmm. so that the real world doesn't do it for you. Um, the only problem is that he posits that the inner critic is wrong a lot of times. And so it makes you feel bad ahead of time whether or not you have a chance at winning. So that's why I talk about it being a liar. That makes a ton of sense and feels extremely familiar, as I'm sure it does to a lot of listeners sure. as well. Um, so you've worked really hard uh, to reverse some of the stigma around depression because depression does have it has a huge stigma around it. And you've also worked to combat the idea that depression and success are mutually exclusive, that successful people don't get depressed. Um, and that really makes me wonder how that stigma kind of initially impacted you when you started to realize what was going on with your mental health. <laughs> It's a funny answer. Um, I'm too stupid uh, to have <laughs> self-preservation skills when it comes to things like that. So I wandered in and just, I would tell anybody, you know, I'd be talking to somebody mm. at Sony Electronics and I'd be like, yeah, I'm just going through some clinical depression right now. So, you know, if I seem a little weird in between takes, don't worry, I'll be great on film, you know, and they would just be like, oh, and, and, Two a one to any and and Sony's just a random example, but like two a one, all these huge companies. If I mentioned it, they would all do the same thing. I treated it like I. It's like I said to them something not too common, but not too weird. 
but weird mm-hmm. enough that they had to feel strange about it. So if I had just as well said, I just farted, it would have been the same thing. Like they didn't know what to do. So they were like, oh, well, okay. And then they kept going, except that I said it about something reasonably important like uh, clinical depression. You know, the thing is, uh, almost every professional comedian deals with clinical depression. Almost every one mm-hmm. of them has either com- uh, depression, anxiety, any of those mental health mil- uh, illness challenges, almost all of them. Um, and if you read their bios, it's it's like, a, you know, grew up listening to albums that were like way before your time. Check. Uh, depression. Check. Always wanted mm-hmm. to be an entertainer, even if you're super shy. Check. You know, it, it's like a, it's on the list. So I think that if you're none of those other things because you're not a professional comedian, the the dealing with depression versus success, so many people deal with depression who are also successful. They're just not as dumb as me, so they don't tell you. <laughs> uh, you know, I appreciate your transparency in that. Um, but that kind of makes me wonder about the flip side of things too, which is that I think a lot of people think, oh, to be successfully creative – you have to be depressed. You have to deal with these demons. Um, and then on the business side of things, we think, oh, we're different than that. We might be creative, but not like that. I'm wondering if you can speak to that sort of dichotomy there between the creative side and what is supposed to be a more buttoned up entrepreneurial side when it comes to depression. That has been sort of my life's challenge, you know, wandering into every business with my weird long hair and my whatever and and saying, hey, suits, you know, you've got to get a little weirder if you want to be more successful. And, and it's really been, I mean, there are people out there who love wearing blue and beige and who love – they know the clipper length number at their barber because they get the same cut you know, for 37 mm-hmm. years or something like that. That's never been me. So you're right. It's, it's um, going into places, especially engineering type places, uh, law places. Engineers, by, by their very nature, love repetitive succession. They want everything. It's 6 plus 6 equals 12 always. Mm-hmm. And, and – and we need that. Like we need that in the world. We need precision uh, because that's how planes stay in the air. That's how you know machines can help us with surgery and all that sort of a thing. So we need that. But what I try to explain to people, I, you know, the best I could do with helping the buttoned up be a little less buttoned is I try to explain to them that failure is not nearly as negative as they think. That failure is so important to feeding your your growth and your success. Everything that requires growth requires failure and pain. Having a baby is pain and a multitude of failures. Going to the gym when you lift weights, it's, ow, it hurts. No one ever says, feel the soft comfort. They say, feel the burn. (laughs) Right. Right. So, you know, we need to adapt this to our business life. No, the, the challenge is when and where to fail. And so that's a lot of times what I like to show businesses is I'll say, probably don't fail while you're flying my plane. I would love for you to land it. I would love to get off of it feeling okay. Do fail in, uh, let's design a better uh, seating arrangement. Is, is you know, all these three in a line kind of seats, is that the best way to lay out a plane? Let's make some mistakes in design and see if we can make a new way to make a plane. That kind of thing. Yeah. Can we talk about failure a little bit more? Because I'd love to know what that looks like in your own business, in your own pursuits. When are you pursuing failure? How are you pursuing failure 
in the name of pushing things forward and, and kind of expanding what you're capable of. If I were pursuing failure, I would be an insane masochist. That would be an <laughs> okay, awful <fair>. choice. <laughs> I will say more that um, I'll give you a Red Hot Chili Peppers quote from Anthony Kiedis okay. is uh, from the song um, Can't Stop. He says, complete the motion if you stumble, right? I think mm-hmm. that is the lesson in failure. If you mess up, just keep going. And when you see real professionals, like pro- professional musicians, uh, gymnasts, uh, athletes of all of all ilk, when they fail, the ones who succeed as you know to become names that we know, the Simone Biles of the world, and those sorts of people, they are great at tumbling, making the mistake, and just going. And they pick up a better score than there are other people who are too afraid to fail, so they lock up before the effort. So it's not – I don't pursue failure. It's maybe almost more realistic to say I pursue the fastest possible recovery. Mm. I, it's funny that you mentioned Simone Biles because I was just reading an article about her this morning and specifically a skill that it appears she is training ahead of the Tokyo Olympics this summer. And it's a new vault skill. It is something harder than has ever been done on the vault before. And she's released a couple of videos of her attempting it. And in those videos, she nails the skill and then tumbles into a soft pad or, um, you know, one of those pits of foam blocks. Right. Um, and that makes me, that sounds like exactly what you're describing. And the intention there is not to land on her feet, right? Like there was, there is no point in her prepping for that vault at this point where she's actually trying to land on her feet. It's too dangerous. It's unnecessary. It's just, it's not part of the process. Um, and so it it sounds like there's this there's a different from your perspective there's a difference between the people who are failing because they're trying to stick the landing every time and the people who are allowing that growth to happen because they're willing to stumble does that yeah. sound right in business it there are so many opportunities to try to shield ourselves from ever looking or feeling dumb i've already used that term about myself four or five times in this interview uh, yes. It, I, it, the one thing people are going to say is, man, that guy really calls himself dumb a lot, you know, but what I see by the, by contrast, a lot in business is that everyone wants to look and appear right. And that usually makes them seem even more wrong. They get more locked mm-hmm. up. They make more mistakes. They, they, uh, stay way too far into their boundaries and safety and, and they don't practice in a, in a good way. I had, I had this argument with a military trainer, um, I was saying, you know, I'm just not a big fan of practice makes perfect. I feel like practice and failure makes perfect. And he said, no, I think perfect practice makes perfect. He's, he's saying, you know, mm-hmm. if you get, if you, if you fall in love with practice more than the outcome, you're going to have such a better life. And I think that that's true. I mean, we're talking depression. That's really true of, you know, my success with depression, you know, uh, you know, I don't feel like I'm going to shower today. Well, didn't stick that, but I think I could still write 4,000 words for the various people I owe words to today. Um, it's the practice of writing. I have done it every single day, at least 2,000 words a day since, well, I started blogging in 98, but let's say 2,000 words since 09 and, or 08 because we wrote Trust Agents in 08. Uh, 2,000 words plus a day, every day. I can now do this on my deathbed. I could do this drunk mm. I don't, not that I drink a lot, but you know, I guess if I were drunk and someone said, quick, you need the words, I would put them out there. Um, and 
Now I can almost always do it on first try. I don't get a lot of edits wherever I submit my work. That's what I do, right? And when I keynote, you could push me in a room, shut the door, say, quick, it's on artificial intelligence, and I could deliver something. You know, quick, it's on the history of the Girl Scouts. I got nothing. I'd still tell you something. Um, so, but that comes from a willingness to look stupid, a willingness to mm-hmm. practice, a willingness to fall in practice. And like Anthony Kiedis said, again, complete the motion if you stumble. I love that. And I, I, yeah, I really resonate with this idea of practice, 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 so you can do it even on your worst days. And we all start somewhere, right? Um, when you, w- was it an intentional choice to practice in that way? Or is it something that you realized over time, This the practice of showing up daily was actually helping you get through times when it was harder to show up? <laughs> I had an interview earlier today with somebody else and they were talking about, you know, you have to fail every now and again so you can learn that lesson, you know, and you fail once and then mm-hmm. you never make that mistake again. And I said, well... I fail about 704 times. I'm never going to do that one again, 703 <laughs> times. And then I'm like, oh, right. I get it. And then I, you know, because I'm just not that fast. I'm not a fast learner. I'm a fast talker and a fast writer. That's all you get. Um, but I will say that um, when it comes to sort of practice, um, when I decided to give up Catholicism for Lent, I went into becoming a Buddhist. And uh, Shambhala Buddhist, which is kind of like the Burger King of Buddhism, it's not like it's not really based on really, really. It's it's based on really old traditions, but it's like mm-hmm. the best parts. Um, and Pema Chodron, who's their kind of like head nun, who's written some amazing books. Um, Julian Smith, my co-author on Trust Agents, turned me on to her by a weird way. He's like, um, Seth Godin told me to read this book. I'm not going to read it, but you probably should. I think you could get into it. I went from that to converting to Buddhism. Because I went oh and flew word. out and met her and it was nuts. And I was like, oh, I'm kind of into this. It's all about practice. And she's like 40-something years being the nun in this particular religion. Uh, well, not religion. They also call it sometimes just a, a philosophy. Um, she's still really crappy at meditating. She meditates every day, multiple times a day. I love that 40-something years later, she goes, I'm sitting up here thinking about groceries and how much that woman really bugged me that she just couldn't have her money ready. As if she somehow had forgotten that she had to pay money after buying the groceries. Like it was the first time on this planet and somehow she was going to make me late by not taking out the money. I love that this woman who's the poster child for this particular kind of Buddhism says she's crappy at meditating. To me, I think that's the best thing to learn about everything we could ever do in all of our business professions because as we're trying to figure out what's going to work for us, you know, we have to accept that part of us. We have to accept that we are not always Wonder Woman. Sometimes, sometimes we have to be uh, way worse than Wonder Woman. I couldn't think of anyone fast enough. <laughs> no, that, that's a great example. You'll hear how Chris has structured his business to work with his depression in just a minute. But first, a word from our What Works partners. First, let's talk about money. The way we earn, invest, spend, and save money is changing. We're learning to question everything we've been taught about how money works, and we're paying close attention to the stories we tell ourselves about money and the assumptions we've made. And that's why the next What Works Conference is an online gathering about money and the new economy. On June 10th, 11th, and 12th, we're bringing together a global community of small business owners to go deep on our relationship to money in an uncertain 
uncertain economy. Money and the New Economy is a live and interactive experience with an opportunity to learn, discuss, reflect, and challenge yourself. We kick things off on June 10th with a welcome reception so you can prepare for the rest of the experience and get to know others who are participating. Then on Thursday, June 11th, we'll meet together for the full day to talk pricing, money mindset, habits, business finances, and more. And then on Friday, June 12th, we'll come back together one more time to debrief in our closing reception. There are no travel expenses, no jet lag, and hopefully minimal childcare arrangements to be made. To learn more about money and the new economy and grab your ticket to the gathering, go to explorewhatworks.com slash money. We do have need-based tickets available. To find out more, go to explorewhatworks.com slash money. What Works is brought to you by Mighty Networks. People want to connect, but our time, capacity, and bandwidth for yet another video call or Facebook group is extremely limited. People want support, and we also want to know we're talking to people who share our goals and values. People want to learn, and we want to collaborate while we do it. Of course, I know you want these things for your customers too. You want to connect them to each other. You want them to feel supported and you want them to learn and grow. Mighty Networks makes it easy for you to help your customers do all of these things all in one place. When you start a Mighty Network, you make it easy for your customers to connect to each other, to support each other, and to learn from each other. Of course, your Mighty Network also makes it easy for you to connect with, support, and teach your customers too. Use your Mighty Network as a private social network to help them communicate and collaborate. Use your Mighty Network as a learning management system to help you deliver high-quality online courses. Use your Mighty Network as a support hub to help you answer questions and offer insight. And of course, use your Mighty Network as a payment processor so your customers can easily pay you for all the value you're creating. Get started with a Mighty Network free of charge by going to MightyNetworks.com. Um, okay, so you mentioned that part of how you've structured your work and and just how you show up as a practice of writing, for instance, at least 2000 words a day, every day, day in and day out, so that you can even do it on your deathbed. How else have you structured your work to accommodate for the ups and downs of your mental health? Thank you for asking this question. Um, this is where so many people get all really mucked up. You have to learn what can you drop on the floor? Like that is so important. I'm, I, I look to my left. I know we're doing audio. I look to my left and there's a laundry pile here that suggests that maybe ah. I'm not as, <laughs> you know, great as I am sometimes. I'm not feeling bad, by the way. I've had, I've had like a year and a quarter of a pretty good run of no real mm. depression. Um, so I'm about due for more. Um, mm-hmm. But I go in a year and a quarter, which is the longest I've gone in maybe 10 years. But that pile of laundry says there's a problem. So I think – that once you learn that your life will go on with a pile of laundry, that you could still make business, that you could still at least launder enough clothing to show up clean clothes at work, you know, and not the, the house won't burn down. I think that, you know, the practice of what you can drop is number one. Number two, um, can you make everything into smaller bites? Um, depression is a lot about what it feels like a lot of times is like you're um, driving around with the parking brake on. And so everything takes much more time. Everything goes slower. Everything takes much more energy. And people will be like, what do you, what'd you do today? And I'm like, almost nothing. Like I almost didn't get out of bed. 
if I could invent like a bed toilet, you know, I guess chamber pot, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not, not there yet. <laughs> you know, I would find a way to live in my bed. If food delivery could come actually to my bed and not to the door, I'd have this thing nipped. That's the real yeah, challenge. I'm, I'm really waiting for those drones because they won't judge, right? Right. That's what I'm thinking. Because I've got windows. I've got big windows. I could put them open. The drone could come right in. The food could land on me. I'd be okay. Joking, but also not because I'm saying small bites, small bites of everything. So if you can, you know, I've got this many things to do and I feel like it's piling up. Well, just do the ones that you can do and do them where you can and just dig in and push a little. Uh, every January, I do a thing called My Three Words, where I help people figure out three mm -hmm. words that might guide them for the year. One of my words for 2020 is push. And the idea was just that, you know, sometimes it's all you have to do. Sometimes you don't have to do anything particularly tricky. There's no big advice that goes with this. Just push. You know, you did a little, just do a little more. I rebuilt my website before our, our interview. Um, and I did it after like people complaining for months that it was slightly broken. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and so I just sort of like scratched at it a little bit. And now it's done and it's fixed and it was just pushing. So that's how that got done. Yeah, I, I can really resonate with that for sure. Can we go back to um, the things that you can drop on the floor? When you say that for you, are you talking about just things like laundry or showering where these things are not that important? Or are there aspects of your business that you can actually drop on the floor and, and kind of keep things moving forward without worrying about those bits and pieces? That is the most important question, isn't it? And so I would say that yeah. when it comes to that, the 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 thing to think about is is this thing that i'm going to have to do or is this is this part of what i'm aiming to do um is it really necessary for right now can i put it off you know client work obviously has to be done and so i i prioritize that about above everything else if i'm working on a book for me a book published by chris brogan i have a commitment to a publishing company usually uh to to give them that book i will slip that a thousand times if I have to, if I'm dealing with depression and be, and they'll be mad at me and they'll like change their things and whatever. And that's okay. But a client has to be served because so far, knock on a lot of wood and some metal so far with client work, I have delivered everything on time or, or so close to on time that no one cared. And, you know, like I had, I had one the other day, it was like, can you do it end of business Monday? And I gave it to him beginning of business Tuesday that kind of a thing. You know, that's mm. no one's life is going to end on that, you know, sleep time. So, uh, I do that by saying, well, what else can I drop? You know, if I were feeling worse, I would have dropped this interview because, you know, right. our lives will go on. You've got plenty of people that are much more interesting than me. I'm just an easy yes. So I get it. I, I would love to know how things have changed for you over the years. So I've been following you since trust agents, for sure. So that's what, 11, 12 years now. Um, and so I, I would love to hear how your business has evolved in that time in relation to your understanding of your own mental health and how, um, you know, how your work impacts the way you feel. Mm. It's an interesting story uh, because that's another thing people get really kind of screwy about with entrepreneurship and, uh, you know, people who are kind of running their own business. You think that once you, quote, make it, 
it's a straight upwards mm-hmm. arrow to the to the left, and you are just going to make all the money because you you know your name's out there, you're world famous, blah 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 blah. One of the most fascinating things about being world famous is you're only world famous for a little while, and then some other person's world famous. And you know, I had that. I had some wonderful people when trust agents came out saying to me just suck it all up right now. Just enjoy it. Just be so happy because it's going to go away and you're going to hate it. And I was like, ha, ha, ha. No, it won't. Um, They were all right. Um, So when Trust Agents came out, it was the most successful thing I'd ever done. Julian Smith and I wrote this book together. It was the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, all the bestseller lists. We hit them all. Uh, USA Today. Mm -hmm. Um, We won a bunch of awards from like 800 CEO Read and all these things. Blah, blah, blah. Boy, aren't you great. Um, I was professionally speaking all the time, so much so I would turn down three, four, or five gigs a week. I would send them to all my friends. So I'm sending my friends $50,000, $60,000 worth of business every week. So not only am I successful, I'm on a whole bunch of stages, I am handing out money to colleagues who, do, who <laughs> yeah. you know, right now, if anyone said to me, I even have a $5,000 project for you, I'd be like, yes. So that's, you know, it's a good feeling. Um, trust agents went really well. I was out on the road, all kinds of crazy. Um, it blew apart my marriage. It caused me a massive amount of mental challenges. Um, I had to deal with internet fame, which, you know, no one knows how mm-hmm. to talk about that. It's, it doesn't even make sense to the rest of humanity. Um, and I really, I wasn't seeing my kids very much. It was not that fun for me. I was on the road like almost, well, in 2010, I think it was every three days, almost by clockwork. So I did 106 speeches in 2010, a little more than most humans do, uh, and had some yeah. client work and other stuff. I wasn't just a speaker. I had work to do. Um, and so that was the highlight of it all. Come like 2012 or so, I'm calming down. D- divorce is happening, but you know, it's okay. It turns out it's going to be better. The conversion to Buddhism happens. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, okay. I can let go of praise and let go of criticism. This is going to be more helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I switch business models entirely from working with really big companies to really small companies. Uh, one little company, one very giant uh, company, uh, delivery company, won't mention names, brown people. Um, they all <laughs> – <laughs> rhymes with schmoosh me schmess. Um, they took 13 months or, or so to get back to me on this stupid project. And by the time they got back to me, I was like, oh, I'm not doing this anymore. I don't even do that work anymore. So I'm not doing this kind of stuff. I'm gonna work with people who can just whip out their credit card and just give me a little money. I'll just find more of them. And that worked really awesome from like 2014, partway through 2016. Massive depression hits somewhere mid 2016. And it's been a really straight straight roll right downhill since. And really only beginning of 2020 have I come out of that and started to be like, oh, mm. I'm in trouble. <laughs> and I've got to like really rebuild. But, you know, the lessons that depression teaches you, teaches you are you can just get back up. You can just do it again. You can just go and do some other thing. And I'm probably not going to write another New York Times bestseller. I'll write more books. Someone will read one and go, oh, I like that book. And then, woo, he's interesting again. You know, there's no age cap on idea people. You know, I maybe I'm not going to be a news anchor anytime soon. I'm certainly the um, New England Patriots haven't called me back. I, I keep trying. I know Brady might be retiring. I thought, yeah, there's like you're in. Thought maybe that I'd have a thing, but they said no. Um, so it's um, it's really I'm just doomed to do the things I do. But I, I feel like I want to say all that stuff to say I don't feel bad. 
there's days I, I wish it was the heyday and I was getting, you know, wined and dined on thousands of dollars of seafood on a rooftop in uh, Vegas. But, you know, that wasn't real life either, you know? So real life is just when you have to define your own success. My last uh, commercial uh, professional business book was The Freak Shall Inherit the Earth. And there's a whole chapter about how you define success uh, because I think that one of the failings we have in life is we think success is a very generic term and it, you know, when you quote unquote make it, but my definition of success was really off. And so I had to kind of go back and, and re-engineer that and now I'm in a better spot. Yeah. I've never thought about the fact that depression teaches you essentially reinvention is, is what I'm hearing you say. And looking back now on my own struggles with depression and my own phases of reinvention, it's like, oh, that makes tons of sense. Um, and I almost put a question in my outline, and I guess now I am putting it in or putting the idea in. It's like, what good can come from depression? I mean, certainly there are things that it teaches us, but I think this sounds like a phenomenal way to frame up a, a key lesson of depression. I would never wish depression on other people. Sure. With a few exceptions. Um <laughs> But I would say that, you know, there's a lot you could take from it. It's funny when you talk about reinvention, that's been a, a theme of mine for a really long time as well, which is just that I, I never, ever wanted to be the, the, you know, and probably a lot to my detriment. I never wanted to be pegged as any one thing. Mm -hmm. The good of that is that I, you know, I've had a lot of great experiences. The bad of that is that if I say Oscar Mayer, you think bologna and hot dogs. You don't think, you know, healthcare products or whatever it is, you know. So mm -hmm. if my brand were smarter, I would have stuck to at least one kind of corner, but I just didn't do that. Um, but you know who also didn't, and it was really good for her for a lot of years until it wasn't, was Madonna. Madonna mm -hmm. had a whole new her like every year. Um, and, and she's challenged right now, and, and she's pretty concerned that it's ageism. I'm concerned that she's trying really hard to do pop music for – you know, the Billie Eilish crowd mm -hmm. when she should be doing pop music for the us crowd, yeah. you know? And I think that it's just like Jay-Z said, um, Jay-Z had all these great stories and raps, you know, from the nineties and whatnot about a guy on the street and a guy who used to have to deal drugs and all the way life was for him and all these problems. And so everyone started calling him a sellout when he was talking about like his art collection and things like that. And he goes, but that's what I'm doing. He goes, I'm performing music about my life. I happen to have art, you know, I, you know, and he goes, part of it is me flexing and saying, look at all this money I have. He goes, but the other part is I'm interested in this. I, I want you to talk to me about art. And I think that that's true of us. I think that things like depression reinventing, you just don't have to, the, the biggest, so this is a Buddhism kind of thing. Again, Buddhism is a lot about, you know, don't hold on to anything from the past. Don't hold on to anything in the future. Like if mom and dad weren't great to you, that you know, that you don't have to hold that if you don't want. You can you can kind of untangle from that because it's not you right now. It just is what was, you know. And that same thing is true to, to good things and bad things. I was this thing, you know. Well, great, but you're not right now. You know, mm -hmm. it's like when you you forget something at home and you spend half of the day going, "Oh, I can't believe I don't have that thing." Well, then what do you have? And I think that asking yourself that question, you know, kind of like what's in my bag right now. I think that's an important way to look at every day of every part of life because some days there's more stuff in the bag. Sometimes there's not. Sometimes it's great that there's not because that means there's room to take in more things. And I think that's what depression does. I think depression allows us to be open to sort of shifts and changes that other people don't take. Mm. 
I love that. Um, so this month on the podcast, we're talking about support and specifically how small business owners find support. How do they utilize support? The kind of people that they lean on when when they have questions or when things are challenging. So I'd love to hear about what kind of support has been most helpful to you as an entrepreneur and how you utilize that support. Every step of the way, I think. I think the most important... I'll give you two things that connect. So whenever someone asks me for advice, I only have one piece of advice. I've given the same one since around 2006. Be helpful. It's just two words. Mm -hmm. Be helpful. Go out and help. You know, I I think that that is a universally amazing piece of advice because it it, it teaches you things. It endears others to you. It gives you more connections than you used to have. Um, When it comes for support and advice and those sorts of things, I have always, always, always been willing to ask a lot of questions and be curious and learn people's story. And I think if you ask people their story over and over and over again, and if you could do it in a much more specific way, there's nothing less interesting to me than some young, uh, nice, slick-haired entrepreneur uh, coming up to me and saying, hey, I'm an entrepreneur now. What was your secret? I don't know. You know? don't fart near people. That's a good secret. Do that over there and then come over. Um, you know, I, I think that, I think that what the, the better part of a story is asking a question about like, you know, if I came over to your house, you know, what would your grandmother cook me and what would make, you know, what does she cook a guest and what does she cook? Like your friend from school, interesting mm-hmm. stories come of that. What's a food you hated when you grew up that you like now? You know, belly questions are a good way to start a storytelling thing. Cause then you get from that into their business, right? Um, this is such a name drop. I had the pleasure of interviewing Sir Richard Branson for an article in Success Magazine. It was the first ever Skype interview that he'd ever done. He was nervous as heck just because it was so raw and it wasn't like him being, you know, he, he couldn't be vetted. I didn't give anybody any questions ahead of time because I never do. Didn't read your questions, Tara, because I don't. Um, Fine. The first thing he said, the very first thing, I see him sit down. I have, I have like a fangasm because this is my hero. Right. And I have to try not I have to try to look like calm, but below the screen I am dancing like a cartoon character. Um, first thing he says into the microphone, "Are you okay? Anything I can get you? What do you need?" I was like, "Oh, pretty good. I have, I have a drink here. I'm I'm good." And he was I I clearly had done all the homework in the world because there was no way I was going to make him think I was, a, you know, just an idiot asking questions. Uh, but when I led into it, I I said I I feel like people would probably always want to talk to you about the parts of your business and life that you'd least want to talk about. He says, huh? Regrettably, that's true. <laughs> I said, do you have to lead them into an area if you ever want to talk about what's interesting to you? He said, he said, normally I just sort of take what you, what I'm given, but I do listen for someone if they're, you know, showing interest. And I think that this is a billionaire saying, I really like it when someone mm-hmm. asks me about the things I'm interested in. That's all humans, all humans, billionaire, hundred dollar heir. We're all the same. Yeah. So let me, let me just make sure I'm understanding you correctly. Cause I mean, obviously on the surface, I understand what you're saying. Be, show up, yeah. be curious, be helpful, ask good questions. And it sounds like that that's not just how you make people like you and make and mm. like grow your audience, but it's also how you grow your support network. It's how you 
create deep relationships with people so that when you need something or when you're feeling down, they're curious about you. They ask you the questions. So I'm very fortunate to have never had an audience. Um, My entire career has been built on serving a community. Mm -hmm. And the biggest difference between an audience and a community is which way you point the chairs. And that matters because an audience is when, you know, and as a keynote speaker, don't get me wrong, I've had rooms full of people that I can't talk to one by one. But boy, if you have ever watched me in a live speech, I talk as much as I can to one person at a time in that crowd. And I name them and everybody's head goes, how does he know that person? Because I know everybody. Um, I feel that... You know, when I'm dealing with depression, you know what happens? People message me privately and say, oh, it turns out I have this depression problem. I had two different guys uh, instantly find themselves going through a divorce, uh, both both times totally surprised to them, as it often is to someone in, in a situation like that. Their their spouses said, Ugh, I'm done. I've had it all. The, the, the other person had thought, like, I don't even remember that we were fighting. We weren't, you know. And they said to me, well, you went through divorce. What happened? What do you do? How do you... How do you shake this feeling? How do you work, you know, when you're dealing with the emotional slam of a surprise divorce? Well, that's different than what what you're when you're asking me that question about support for business. How do you file an invoice? You know, that's you can get that on YouTube in two and a half minutes. The real problems are, you know, the ones that no one wants to talk about. And so I think that if you kind of make it a little more clear that you're willing to hear and also willing to talk about you know, the less than common and less than perfect parts of your life, I think that you get so much richer opportunities. Do you know what people never talk to me about at conferences when they find me in the hallway? Uh, The weather or like, you know, some stupid podcast or something like that. They talk to me about their life and they talk to me about something that they're happy about or sad about, or, you know, I just had to put my mom in hospice or something, you know, and they'll tell you this story and you're like, wow, how does that feel? Because, you know, you've gone from, you know, they cared for you all your life and all that. I think we know how to ask these questions. I think we feel weird doing it, Mm -hmm. but what would you want? I mean, almost all of us want those questions asked if it's sincere and if it's, you know, done in a spirit of, I just want to understand you. Now, one huge caution, and some people, especially people who deal with depression, do this insanely wrong. So pretend I just pulled out yellow highlighter and spread it all over the page. Do not dump your emotional vomit all over somebody. Do not, you know, if you're having the worst days of your life, they have not uh, signed up to become your impromptu hallway therapist. You know, you have to say to them, not, you know, how are you doing? Great. But what you can't also do is say, let me tell you when I was six years old and I, you know, someone put out their cigarette on my face. You can't. You have to go somewhere in the middle and say, you know, I'm having a rough day today. I'm I'm dealing with a little depression. I'm really kind of slogging through some some moods and some chemicals that I wish I weren't dealing with. I appreciate you asking. I'm good. I'll be good, you know, hopefully. Keep an eye out on me, you know? There's nothing wrong with any of those. Just don't, you know, don't dump over the bucket. It's it's amazing sometimes because we all, all humans, not dealing with depression or otherwise, all humans feel just a little bit like we're drowning and we're just below the surface. We just don't quite have enough air. And in this case, the air is kind of attention, um, uh, compassion, connection. And if we're drowning all the time, we struggle to kind of blurt to get that last gasp. And the problem is it's just not, it's not well received ever. So we have to kind of be as calm as we can as we break the surface and get a little bit of air. We have to not, you know, overwhelm the person with our gasping. 
I really appreciate that caution. And I really appreciate uh, how you've just framed that because that makes a lot of sense to me. And it's also completely how I see you show up on social media. And you have been so generous in talking about your own struggles with depression and and just mental health in general in exactly that way where you show up and you just acknowledge the fact that you're not feeling great or you know this is what's going through my head but it's not that mental vomit <laughs> that you, you know that you mentioned um what made you start you know cuz not everyone would feel comfortable not everyone would even be willing to share even that on social media in such a public way what got you started sharing on social exactly what you just described? Um, humor would dictate that I would repeat the thing about being too stupid to know how to do it otherwise. Because um, <laughs> yes, that's a callback. That. <laughs> but um, really, and this is dangerous ground, um, I wanted to be helpful. I, I just wanted someone else out there to go, oh, man, I can't believe you shared that. And it has chain reactions, Tara. I, just five minutes before I went on this, I was closing all my tabs. I don't go into Facebook much anymore, so I go kind of once a day. I went today, mm -hmm. and my friend Richard had done an interview with me about depression for business, and someone sent him this massive letter. And it was all about, I guess I'm going to need to hear that a bunch more times from successful people because I don't feel comfortable enough talking about it yet, but I feel a little bit more comfortable now that you did. I've been going through the worst time. And they just kind of like had to say the things they had to say to Richard. And the only reason I even got a, a, a fragment of this letter shared with me is it's because of my talk that person felt like they could. If I can get more people to talk about it as matter-of-factly as I do, then we're helping people. They always say representation matters, right? You know, we have... Mm -hmm. um, uh, we have gay superheroes and we have, you know, multiracial families all over TV and all these things that were not seen on TV and in print and in entertainment. And, and then it just keeps moving forward. You know, we have drag queens uh, in a game show and now there's drag queen story hour in all kinds of libraries. And whether or not you do or don't want to become a drag queen in your life, there's someone in that story hour crowd who has different feelings than the other kids. It's like, wow, that person I think is a boy in a dress. And, you know, they're like clicking it all together. And I think that for me, I guess I'm not a drag queen and I'm at least ostensibly straight and I'm pretty white. So the only thing I have going is depression. So, you know, I just want that representation to matter. <laughs> you know, I want people to go, yeah. huh, didn't seem to hurt him too bad. Um, and it hasn't. And now, now, conspiracy theory time, maybe there's a bunch of companies out there going, oh my God, I can't hire Brogan. He deals with depression. You know, But you know who did hire me? Disney. Bunch of times. Sony, Google, Microsoft, Coke, Pepsi. Uh, I'm going to forget a bunch. General Motors. You know, I've had the biggest logos you could possibly ever want on your site. Who know that I deal with depression? I guess they'd rather me than some of the other people that make the news these days. And so, you know, if you think depression is some kind of weird albatross that lets you not show up in the world, you just have to yes and it. Yeah, I, I deal with depression and I'm also a pretty good writer. You know, that's where you're heading. You're not, you're not, you don't make it the highlight. It's no one's superpower per se. It's just a skill, mm -hmm. you know, like when you go, when you go to Top Chef and they're, they're all talking about, well, you know, when I was a kid, my grandma taught me all these Caribbean spices. So there's always a dash of Caribbean spice and things. Depression is my Caribbean spice. <laughs> well, that's a tweetable for us all. <laughs> 
Uh, Chris, what are you excited about right now? Talking with you. It's been a little while. Um, I, I launched a thing at the beginning of the year called Story Leader, and it's it's another yeah. opportunity to fail. Um, and what I did here was, uh, you know, I do a lot of business and marketing and sales type stuff, and this is kind of a leadership training uh, take on some of the stuff I teach companies in marketing. And it's that you know stories do a lot better job of conveying information. I always say that the the best container for memory is a story. Right. Like if you try to remember numbers, mm-hmm. it's kind of like dry, trying to drink soup with a pencil. It doesn't quite work out. And so I'm trying to teach leaders who have been told for years, story is really important. Mm-hmm. What do they really mean by that? How do you tell a story? How do you tell a story to distracted people? How do you, you know, package and compartmentalize and make it easier for someone to walk off with that story? Because we're in like a TikTok time frame kind of world. You know, we, everything is about brevity. Everything's about the length of a tweet. And I think that that doesn't go away. And I think that instead we have to teach people how do you chunk things into smaller bites that are memorable as kind of full formed molecules, even though they're smaller than the entity. And so story leader is the thing I'm really excited about. No customers yet. I have all kinds of really good prospects. A lot of, you know, those kinds of sales talks where you're like, yeah, okay, I can wait another month. Um, And, but I think that I'm really hanging my hat on this one. I'm really thinking one way or another, I want to launch this. And who knows? I mean, I've I've launched and quit more businesses than most people have launched. Mm-hmm. So this could be another on the pile. But I am really putting it out there. And I have a crazy picture of me riding a rainbow shark. Um, and so, you know, we'll see. <laughs> Wonderful. Chris, thank you so much for your transparency and your humor and just and your generosity and everything that you've shared today. I really appreciate it. I'm just excited that we get a chance to explore what works. <laughs> Find out more about Chris Brogan at chrisbrogan.com. Now, I hope after today's episode, you feel a little less lonely. Whether you're a seasoned pro at depression like I am, or whether you're having a hard time navigating our current crisis, or whether you're supporting someone who is in the throes of depression or anxiety right now, you are not alone. If you're looking for more conversation around the topic of mental health, check out episode 244 of What Works with Joe Casey, and stay tuned for an upcoming episode with Nancy Jane Smith of the Happier Approach podcast. But next time, you'll hear from Sarah K. Peck. Sarah and I jam on how we both participate in, facilitate, and do business with mastermind groups. Before you go, don't forget to check out our upcoming online gathering, Money and the New Economy. It's a live and interactive virtual conference that will challenge your assumptions about money, help you examine your relationship to money in a changing economy, and connect you with others who are doing the same. Learn more and get your ticket by going to explorewhatworks.com slash money. What Works is produced by Yellow House Media. Our production coordinator is Sean McMullen. This episode was edited by Marty Seafell. Our production assistant is Kristen Runbeck. Find over 270 more episodes of What Works and sign up for our free weekly newsletter full of ideas, inspiration, and reflections on building a business that works better at explorewhatworks.com.